to the Real Life Diabetes Podcast. My name is Amber Kluwer, and I've lived with type 1 diabetes for decades and enjoy sharing my story and those of other people living with this disease. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few quick announcements. Number one, the Diabetes Daily Grind is a nonprofit, charitable organization. Funds raised help keep the website, podcast, and advocacy efforts afloat. It's easy. Just purchase a copy of Doing Diabetes Differently or click the donate link on my website. Number two, stay engaged on all things social media, sign up for the e-newsletter, and subscribe to my newly updated YouTube channel where this episode will soon be live. Enough rambling. Let's get started. As I start this episode, I want to share that I'm currently recovering from COVID. So my voice is a little deeper than usual, but the show must go on. And I'm thrilled to virtually interview today's guest, Serena Valentine, who was misdiagnosed with type 1 diabetes. You don't hear that very often, but this misdiagnosis is one of the many reasons she is a passionate advocate for health equity, eye health, and diabetes education. Serena, welcome to the show, and tell us where you're calling in from. Hi, everyone. I'm from Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) You got to throw a little twang in there. (laughs) Yeah, you know, can you hear it? (laughs) (laughs) I lived in San Antonio for a short time, and I picked up a twang while I was there. So it's just, Uh it happens. So I start each episode with, and again, my voice is going to be crackly the whole time, so my apologies. Let's talk about your diagnosis story, because it is one of those that I think it's the first one that I've heard with this type of misdiagnosis. Yeah. So at the time I was 20 years old, going to school and working. And so I did have a lot of the symptoms, but at the time, hindsight, I didn't have it. I didn't know. I didn't have any education on it. So I was losing weight having frequent urination, being tired all the time Mm -hmm. and just not feeling too well. But I thought I was just experiencing because I was in college. So, you know, how you you (laughs) go to parties and stuff and, you know, I was living it up. I was partying, trying to work and go to school. Well, And losing weight, that's like a bonus. I mean, you're not thinking, oh my gosh, I could be sick. I was like, works for me. Honestly, I didn't really know. But one day, I was off from work this day, didn't have school this day, and I could not wake up out of sleep. It was hard. Even Mm -hmm. if I would open my eyes, I had to go at the fall right back into sleep. So a friend of mine that was there with me, he asked me, he said, are you okay? And I was like, "Uh." you know how when you're sleeping, Mm -hmm. you're like, "Uh, leave me alone. (laughs) So he got concerned. So we went to the ER And I found out I had a severe kidney infection Mm. out of everything that I was doing. You know, sometimes we can get so busy with things we don't pay attention. So I had a severe kidney infection and my blood sugar was 550. Mm. And the the doctor asked me, Ms. Valentine, did you know that you had diabetes? And I was like, no. Did you know what what diabetes was at that point? I mean, I knew what it was because I had certain family members that have it, but they were all older. You know, I was 20. So I was like, wait a minute, like, what do you mean? I have diabetes. That's not a young person's disease. Right. So I was thinking. And so during the time I was there, they did show me a little video in the hospital room I was at and it had type one and type two. So the next time the doctor came in, I asked, uh, I saw a video about type one, type two, which one am I? And he said type one. And he said specifically because of your age. Oh. So that's, the, I guess 20 was the cutoff 
for mm -hmm. type one, uh, it gets back in the information, the generalized information. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got diagnosed with type one. So immediately before I even left the hospital, I stayed in the hospital for like actually almost two weeks. The kidney infection mm -hmm. was really bad. And they showed me, I had to learn how to give myself insulin, mm -hmm. how to check my blood sugars and refer me to a doctor immediately. So after I left, course, I immediately went back to work thinking, oh, I feel good. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And so for about five years, I was treated as a type one. So I was given insulin. I had to take insulin several times a day in the morning before meals and yeah. before bedtime. And so just out of curiosity really quick, because I was diagnosed yes. decades ago, what year, mm -hmm. A, what year was this? And the insulin that they put you on immediately, will you share that please? What year did, did yeah. was I diagnose? Oh, it was 2003. 2003. Okay. So what insulin did yeah. they put you on? They immediately put me on Novolog. Okay. Okay. Novolog. And so, and I didn't really, honestly, I was only taking one type of insulin and then eventually it got to two types because I was taking the long acting, yeah. the Levamir and then yeah. Novolog in the daytime, whatever. And so you, it gets, it gets foggy. You well, know, you're like, after a while. that's not what I do these days. I, I run past that. <laughs> right, 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 right. It gets foggy. But when I was 25, I became pregnant with my son and I had a whole, by that time, I had a whole new set of a healthcare team that mm -hmm. was treating me for my diabetes. And so because I was seeing two more extra doctors, including the high risk pregnancy doctor, they told me, they're like, well, why are you taking insulin? And I was like, because that's what they've been telling me to do. Like, what do you mean? So they said, well, you do know you're type two. And mm. I was like, no, that's not what they told me. They told me type one. And they were like, no, you are type two. So, and, and I guess it was more important. They really looked deeper into it because I was pregnant, I believe. Did that they do like a different a blood test or something? Like, I can't imagine thinking you have type one for almost five years, like nobody else picked up on this. Right. Well, because the healthcare team I start off with, I had the whole, the well, mm -hmm. I am not going to say the whole five years, about four years. And then I switched the healthcare team because my insurance, I was on my dad's insurance and got switched <laughs> off. So I had to switch the whole healthcare team. And so they did a whole new workup all over again. Oh, okay. That, and during that time is when I found that I, I became pregnant and that's when they did the whole workup. So that's what happened. That was a dramatic change because during those first five years, I was in and out of the ER trying to figure out what was going on. Like, mm -hmm. if I you know, they were like, I, we think you're taking too much insulin. Like what's, you know, because my blood sugars were getting low all mm -hmm. the time. When people are diagnosed with type one, they usually, they're like, oh, that's the bad kind of diabetes, which I hate that terminology. But so when they shifted it to type yeah. two, where you're like, woohoo, I won the lottery because now I don't have to take insulin. I mean, that's a totally different, you have to learn how to treat your diabetes differently. So how did you shift that whole mentality? It was really, honestly, it was really hard. And I really wasn't excited that it was a change because what I learned is that it's no, neither one is best or worse. Yeah. It's just different different types. That's why it's type one type two. Yeah. And so I just had in my mind, well, I'm going to have to learn how to take care of myself because I'm young. I'm still struggling with, okay, so what do I need to do? Because I didn't know too much about complications. There was a lot I still didn't know. 
And so I decided I'm going to try, but in the midst of all of this happening, life was happening and, Mm -hmm. and I was going through a lot of challenges because I was in school and then I had to take a break because I was pregnant. And then I went back while my son, right two months after my son was born, I went to online classes. So I was trying to, in the midst of trying to live life, trying to achieve something and trying to be healthy at the same time. It was a lot going on, but I'm still here as you can see. Well, and how is it was your, you you have a healthy son and a healthy pregnancy through that whole scenario? Yes. So pregnancy was actually really peaceful. I didn't have a lot of problems during the pregnancy, but during labor is when I started having the issues. So my OB-GYN had me going, I went to the hospital almost two weeks before I even had my son because my blood sugars were going up and down. They were kind of crazy. And I ended up, I was trying to have my son natural, have a natural childbirth, but it didn't, I, I couldn't because his heart stopped during labor. Ooh. And because they said I had a seven minute long contraction, I didn't feel it. I honestly did not feel the contraction, but I just, I was asleep and I woke up to everyone rushing in the room and getting picked up, tossed around. And I'm like, <laughs> what's going on? So, <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, what is going on? So they were like, we need to do a C-section. We got to get them out now. So oh. they were trying to induce labor, but I had to end up having a C-section, but he came in. Okay. But he had jaundice. It had something to do with his Billy Rubin. Our types don't go together. Okay. So he had to sit under a light. Yeah. Um, he had to sit under fluorescent light for a few days before I could even touch him, which was kind of hard, yeah. but we made it, we made it through it. So, well, so during yeah. that whole period of time, because like I said, you're the first person I've ever heard to have that type of misdiagnosis. Do you feel like you received proper education upon the second diagnosis? Because it is your body's type two is very different and you'd been trained uh, in type one. I mean, Yeah, no. And I honestly didn't feel like I had enough information about type one either at the time. And I I didn't know that diabetes education was even available for me to take advantage of. I was just trying to read the pamphlets that I was given. I looked at the video while I was at the hospital. I was trying to go along with that and researching, Googling. And that's how I lived the first, at least the first five years of my diagnosis was fumbling around kind of like no pun intended just kind of blind shotting and thing like well yeah well at least I mean think about this too you were smart enough to do your own research and I think it's a real disservice to you that you didn't receive proper education which I think is very common unfortunately and as we are talking about healthcare disparities do you think that it was for certain reasons was it the medical provider in Houston Is it the hospital that you were diagnosed in? Is it because you're a person of color? Do you feel like there was any reason why you didn't receive proper education? Honestly, not a fair question, but I mean, like, right. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not sure why there are, I feel like there is a breakdown in in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it does depend on what area of town you're you're at, what area of town Mm -hmm. is being served. And it it, it depends. Sometimes it even depends on your education level uh, and what you know, what you don't know. Because at the time I was young, I didn't, 
I didn't know too much of anything. So anything a doctor told me was gold. I was just I like, know. well, I'm just going to go along with that. And so well, and there's a whole lot of things that could that, that was wrong. There was a whole lot of things that was wrong. Well, I think it's one of those things too, you being a young person at the diagnosis, we're not taught to have a voice. We are taught to trust in our medical providers that they know everything. And I, that's no disrespect for the medical community. So unfortunately your story is not a unique one. It's just like you rose above that situation. And I love what you're doing now. We'll get into that here in a little bit. But one of the reasons why I'm interviewing you today is because unfortunately you have experienced some complications from diabetes. And I want to discuss what that has looked like. Okay. So a lot of people are, they highlight the, my vision loss. I have had other complications as mm -hmm. well. I have diabetic neuropathy and I was dealing with some fatty liver disease for a while, a long time until the function in my liver improved. Hmm. And actually I was dealing with the liver stuff this is the reason why people really should go and see their doctors. When I started having vision problems and was diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy, I found that out at my ophthalmologist. They did the blood testing and they were the ones told, who told me to go check with my primary care to see what's going on with my liver because they saw my liver enzymes were off. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like if you go and get checked and you go and see the right people, you may find out that more than one thing is going on with your body. Yeah. And thank God that I was able to go and ask my primary care physician about my liver to find out what was going on, to try to kick myself in gear to do better. So with the vision at that time, when I had the vision problems, I didn't even have insurance. Yeah. And so I was trying to do things the best way I could. I wasn't able to take medication regularly. So it was a lot of things going on at that time. But when I finally went to go see a doc, eye doctor, they saw that the retina was detaching from the right eye first. And mm. then I went, got reattachment surgery and some laser surgeries. Three days after the reattachment surgery, no vision, woke up, it was completely dark. Oh. And went back to the eye, to my ophthalmologist said, what's going on? The retina had become completely detached. And so it's still that way right now. So that hasn't changed. But not too long after that, I was having problems with my left eye. And then the retina started detaching from the left eye. We did not do another reattachment surgery. I was weirded out by it. I was like, no, because what happened yeah. last time? And so my ophthalmologist then just told me, we're just going to watch it. And so... Actually, I was doing, I was conducting a diabetes peer support group. I remember when we were talking about medications, I blinked my eye and opened it and it was just light. Like I couldn't see any definition in anything. And so I made it to the end of the meeting. Good thing that my mom was there with me. And so I was able to make it to the end of the meeting. My mom said, are you ready? Let's go. And I said, no, mom, I can't see. Can you like I can see your white shoes, so I'm going to follow your white shoes out And that's how, and I, I dealt with that for nine months. But in the midst of that, I honestly feel like that happened to me for a reason, because now then I really was trying to take care of myself. And what from what I heard from my doctor was that I need to really focus in on regulating my blood sugars to keep it from getting worse. Okay, let me ask you, with the type 2 diagnosis and the co few complications that you've experienced, and I'm so, sorry for all of that because that's a huge burden, 
Did they tell you where your blood sugar needed to be? And did you have the proper tools, whether that be a, a glucometer or a CGM? Because if you don't have those tools, you can't manage your blood sugar. And did they also mm-hmm. talk to you about maybe diet and exercise and how that plays into your diabetes management? Yes. Well, by the time I started having vision problems, I was doing the work in the community. So okay. I was getting certifications. I was learning myself how to even teach diabetes education. So mm-hmm. just like I was learning how to teach it, I was learning for myself. Mm. So that's how I got the education on what to do for myself. And so I just started doing what I learned because honestly, I really did not get proper education. That's just the, the honest truth. I really didn't get proper education on what to do for myself. But when I started honing in on doing the work, that's when I started learning because I would take that information and not just teach it, but do it for myself. Well, and I think one of the things, and we're going to get into your career path here in just one second, but having to learn it and then teach it to others, A, that's a hands-on experience, which hopefully that makes it easier for you to pick up on. And two, the people that you serve, knowing that you're doing your walk in the walk with them, that's got to just be so much more well-received because my personal experience is if somebody is preaching to me about diabetes that has never walked a day, you know what? That's just, you're just talking to me. I mean, I got to hear it from somebody who understands what it's like to have a blood sugar of 400 for no apparent reason, you know, and things like that. So, okay. So let's talk about, you've taken your diabetes advocacy and everything that to another level, let's discuss where you work and what your role is. So I am executive director for a nonprofit here in Houston called Core Initiative. It's health and wellness education and quite naturally, we do a lot with diabetes (laughs) because of me, because that's what I reach out for. That's, that's my niche. So we do diabetes self-management classes and diabetes peer support meetings for people who already are living with diabetes. I also, which is how I got here. I am an ADA focused on diabetes for them. Um, We're raising awareness and everything. This is right up my alley. I also am a patient advocate with Prevent Blindness. I do a lot of work with them uh, in trying to raise awareness about diabetes and vision loss. So, and I work, I also work with a global initiative called Cities Changing Diabetes. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got the peer support program. So I lead their project in Houston for them, for the Diabetes Peer Support Program. And I work with their other initiatives in Houston as well. So I'm going to read a little bit something. This is from the website is the Houston Diabetes Peer Support Program was designed to help individuals face the reality of their diabetes diagnosis. This support program allows its participants to share their concerns and emotions about diabetes in a safe and confidential environment. And all I can say is hello, mental health, something that's not talked about enough. Can you talk a little bit about what it looks like to sit in on or be participate in that program? Oh, it's so phenomenal. I love it because when I get in meetings, people look at me as like the expert because I'm conducting the meetings. But I tell everyone when they come in, I'm not the expert. Everyone's diabetes is different. And there may be some things that you know that I don't know and that I know that you don't know because there's the book smarts, what we know on paper about diabetes, Mm -hmm. but there's also life with diabetes that is a whole uh, another different animal to look at because Mm -hmm. then you have to take into account I interact with people 
family, friends, coworkers, other colleagues. I also, I have to go to work, workplace environment. I have different other types of relationships. I have to work around that. And those people have to be concerned about me. Otherwise, if they're not, then they probably don't need to be in my life, right? <laughs> and so just trying to deal with everything, everything that a normal person deals with, but adding diabetes to it, even with grief, losing loved ones, mm-hmm. that's rough. And during pandemic was, I had the most people in peer support during pandemic because they were losing loved ones. Some of them, their health was suffering because they're grieving. They don't, they don't want to eat. They don't care yeah. about medication. They miss their loved ones. So mm-hmm. getting, trying to encourage them to still take care of their diabetes because they're still here on earth. It was really emotionally tasking, but rewarding at the same time. Because then that's when you realize, wow, this thing is not just an illness. It's not just something I'm just dealing with in my body. Like even the stress of everything affects your blood sugar levels. Oh, so, so important to know that. So, I mean, but it's so rewarding for me. I get help. I, let me tell you, I'll be sitting there with a pen and pad or in my head now, not a pen and pad because I don't write anymore because my vision (laughs) But I'm taking notes in my head. Somebody said, well, they tried this and they tried that. I'm like, okay. They're like, Miss Serena, are you listening? Yep, I am listening because I'm trying to get it for myself. And I, I love them. They're they're like my diabetes family. So. I get it. I mean, since starting the Diabetes Daily Grind and hosting this podcast, I mean, I didn't have anybody in my life that had diabetes. And that's a long, and that was for 30 years. You know, mm-hmm. you wear that weight by yourself. So I know the impact and the importance of these types of conversations. And like you said, you hit the nail on the head with, you know, we have the same disease, but our management and everything could be, is very different. So sharing the tips and tricks and just having an open discussion, I think is the most valuable thing that the diabetes medical community has is listening to our voices, because like I said, we're walking the walk and we know how to talk about it. I want to read one statistic and we can talk about this if you'd like. And I'll get into that here in a second, but according to the National Eye Institute, more than 800,000 Black Americans have diabetic retinopathy, a number that is expected to surge to 1.2 million by 2030. There's a number of questions and not maybe, I mean, this is just statements and please chime in is, and I started a new podcast soon called Just the Facts, Please, where I will interview a specialist who can speak to why Black Americans are more likely to have diabetic retinopathy. As a Black woman, do you, when you hear things like that, does it spark something? Are you like, why? What's going on here? How do we know that that's the case? The short answer is yes, it sparks a lot of feelings and emotions concerning it. But there are lots of different reasons why that may be true. Yeah. For example, the social determinants of health. I mean, what environment you live in, yeah. what neighborhood you're in, what education is provided in the community, whether or not your area is a food desert um, oh, yeah. makes a lot of difference. <clears throat> the crime rates. If your area has a high crime rate, do you want to get outside and walk? No. no. That's a valid point. <laughs> and, yeah, you. I mean, and if the the area you live in, if it, there's no sidewalks, there's no parks nearby. Mm. Where where are you going to go outside and walk? 
Now I've had to talk to a lot of people. So I've had to do this myself. I've lived in those areas mm -hmm. and I just had to psych myself out and exercise inside of my home. Yeah. And which can be hard sometimes because you're in the house, but if you don't feel comfortable being outside, you're not going to go. Also, whether or not you have health insurance. Oh, yeah. Some people are uninsured, insured, and underinsured. Yeah. And I had to learn the difference between those myself. And it's not necessarily a person's fault why they might be underinsured. The amount of money they make may not cover the type of insurance that they need. And a lot of those things are factors, uh, whether or not there's a clinic nearby, because if you don't have a car, I've been mm -hmm. in that situation too, and you have to take public transportation. It takes all day just to go to a doctor's visit. You're probably going to stay in for 30 minutes. Yeah. And it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. And so not just that, although we have Black Americans, African Americans, we have a robust culture, but yeah. there are some things about our culture that <laughs> include unhealthy lifestyle habits. When, you know, we do a lot of celebrations with food mm -hmm. and really, honestly, food is not the problem. It's what type of food you're eating. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of recipes are passed down generation to generation. So this can date back years. But I always tell people, if you can start now, the change that we want to see will start with us. Yeah. And we can teach our children. And if they learn those healthier habits, you know, we're all creatures of habit. Yeah. So if we learn healthier habits from a young age, not saying they won't go try something else or go do this or that, but it'll be in their brain. Well, this is, I used to do this all the time. This is nothing for me to do if I need to. So that's my well, take on it. And now that, and thank you for sharing. And I want to say too, and my parents would be embarrassed for me saying this, but in my adult life, many times I've been uninsured mm -hmm. and I'm thankful that I'm at least an intelligent enough of a person and strong-willed enough to find answers, but I've been there and it is tough. And so that's one of my huge advocacy efforts is I don't care if you have $1 in your pocket or $1 million in your pocket, you deserve the same treatment and healthcare than the, the person sitting next to you. And again, I applaud everything that you're doing. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you as a guest is because you've taken your personal experience and are sharing it. And hopefully you like that kind of gives people a pat on the back or something like, man, if I can go through this and look mm -hmm. at me now, you can too. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what's the future look like for you, Serena Valentine? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to build on the network that I've established. My nonprofit has been in business for seven years. Yay. Yay. And so I kind of just want to build on it, expand it. I think people everywhere should have access to diabetes education because especially in America, it's going to grow exponentially even bigger than it is now. And so that, and I just want to keep spreading awareness and spread hope along with the awareness that things can change. I've gotten to the point where I was really, really sick. And I was even told at one point to draw up a contingency plan for my son. He's a special needs mm. child. And I needed a contingency plan for him because I wasn't going to make it as long as I felt like I was going to. And that's how sick I was. And I'm still here and I'm talking to you, ever. So <laughs> I, I want to share that hope that it doesn't matter where you are in your diabetes management, how long it's been since diagnosis, you can work on it and things can change and you can improve the quality of your life. I love that so much. And I want to wrap it up with a qu two questions that I ask every guest over the past couple of years. It's really been brought to my attention. One, we've already addressed. 
which is did you receive proper education upon diagnosis and continued through your diabetes journey? We've touched on that. And you have been your own advocate. Good on you. The second one we kind of t- we touched on, but we didn't dive into is, do you have access to healthy foods within a two mile radius of your home? I personally, now I do. It wasn't like that for years. And I always had to travel, especially when I had, I had problems with my vision. I don't drive. So trying to catch public transportation, that's difficult because I would often catch myself on the wrong bus or going the wrong way. And it would be so frustrating just to get to a grocery store with good produce. Let's just be real. In certain areas of town that only have convenience stores, liquor stores, and fast food restaurants. Yep. And the stores, the grocery stores are far distance away. So I do now. Thank God. Well, that's I great. I do now. And so now I actually order my groceries. I well, have them delivered. Yeah. Well, and that's so great that I'm going to say that technology, that's not the correct term, but we now have the opportunity to have groceries delivered to our door. It was there a little bit before the pandemic, but now it's, if you have a disability and you can't see or are not mobile enough to go and buy healthy things, okay, Walmart, Homeland, all the places will deliver to your door. With that Mm -hmm. being said, I think about even leading up to this, when you look at food deserts and the things that pop up in between, like you said, convenience stores, there's no fresh fruits or vegetables. Well, they, they, some of them are trying to pop that stuff in. Let's not get ourselves, but it's still processed and God knows what you're eating. And then you have places like, and no disrespect, Dollar Tree, Mm -hmm. and they are starting to bring in more groceries and they're putting it up front and you can see that. So Mm -hmm. I just hope that if that's all that you have available in your community, that we as advocates can push them towards, let's just put a couple more fresh things in there for the people that this is their only option. Right. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much again, Serena, for taking time to join the show and I will continue to follow your advocacy efforts. And please let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Of course. Thanks for having me, Amber. As I wrap up, I want to remind you that I'm here for my diabetes and the medical community. So feel free to contact me at diabetesdailygrind.com. Your continued support and love help keep the episodes coming. Cheers to the highs and lows, everyone. Yes, I'm alive. One minor inconvenience. A little thing called diabetes is a daily grind and the daily grind. And it grinds and grinds and grinds and grinds. You got to watch what you eat.